Hello and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place where we share creative and inspiring learning in our schools. Episode 66. Hello and welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast uh, with me, Mark Taylor. Um, today I'm joined by Tony Ude, um, and he recently did a lecture for the National Association for Primary Education as part of their Christian Schiller lectures, and um, I think it was very well received um, and a very interesting topic. So I thought it'd be great to have a conversation and, and just share this um, this lecture with you as well and some of his great insights. So welcome, Tony. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Um, so could you start, give us a little bit about your professional background and your educational experience? I, I trained to be a, a primary teacher at um, Goldsmiths College in 1975-6, uh, and then I was a um, primary class teacher for about 13 years. I then became a head teacher in a multicultural school in Oxford, in England, um, for nine years. I then went off and did a doctorate. And I've worked for about the last 15 years or so uh, as an independent uh, consultant, uh, author, writer, working with groups of teachers and children. Fantastic. And what was the um, what was the crux of the lecture? What was the what was the uh, the impetus behind the, the lecture itself? Well, I've been very concerned for a long time about primary education and education more generally becoming too narrow and rather soulless, uh, too concerned with data in a narrow um, area of the curriculum. And I, when I was asked to do the Schiller Lecture, I decided to choose the topic of what I called rehumanizing uh, primary education, because I was concerned that perhaps we've uh, we've lost some of the most important aspects of primary education which is to do with the relationships between children and teachers and that the schools have become rather too soulless and not always meeting the uh, the most important needs of young children especially in some areas to do with the humanities and the arts and what do you believe is a way to to re to reconnect that? Is it more um, less testing and more focus on a on a wider curriculum, like you say, with the humanities and the arts, or is it a bit more of a a personal approach in terms of actually? I, I I've talked before on the podcast about actually having more of an idea of the story of the children and and and, and them as human beings, really, and their education through actually who they are is a starting point rather than just a curriculum input. Well, it's it, it's a bit of each, but it's more of the second of, of what you're saying. I mean, I think we do over-test children. Um, I think that the curriculum has focused far too much on content knowledge and on a whole range of skills, which, while they're important, they're not really what the most important aspect of what I would call the education of the whole child is. So it's much more, I think, it's not it's much more to do with um, the sorts of experiences and relationships which we offer to children so that they develop a very 
broad range of, um, of skills and experiences, um, but in particular how they come to understand themselves in relation to the sort of complex and difficult world which which they encounter. Um, so as I said, I, while it's Im important, I think, that we look at changing some of the curriculum and some of the assessment procedures, that in itself won't really resolve the issue that I'm really trying to talk about, which is much more about the sorts of environments, the sorts of relationships that we build up so that children are helped to understand themselves and the world that they live in. And can you give us some examples of, of, of what that might actually look like in the, in the, in your sort of ideal world of, of, of how a school would work? Well, I, I think if you think about walking into a school or walking into a classroom, one picks up very quickly the feel of the place or the ethos. Now that's very hard to pin down. It's certainly something which I think isn't measurable. Um, but it's the it's what one feels in terms of a place being welcoming, being um, lively, being the sort of place where you as a learner or you as a parent would want the child to be. So it is very hard to, to, to you know to put one's finger on certainly in terms of anything measurable. But I think in terms of experience, it's something that most of us have a very strong um, feeling about. And I think particularly that's true for children and for, and, and, and for young children. But the, the sort of examples that I would probably give would be the way in which um, teachers welcome the children, the, the, the sorts of... Um, responses that they give both to children and to parents, um, the ways in which um, teachers are able to remember and to make reference to maybe some of the lovely things and some of the more difficult things that happen in children's lives. You know, whether it's the fact that over the weekend they were, you know, going to some special event or maybe they had a brother or sister who, you know, had me very well, or any of those sorts of things which are maybe not sometimes so much associated with school learning in the sense of literacy or numeracy or music or science or, yeah. or whatever. But they're actually really at the heart of how we are um, as people and how we learn to be... Um, the sort of people that, that we want to become. And I suppose I would also want just to add at this point that I think this is what the best primary teachers do. And it's why often primary class teachers are the, the sorts of people whom adolescents and then adults very often remember with great affection. So the whole of what I'm saying is not really... Uh, um, uh, an issue about criticising 
teachers as such. It's much more to do with the sort of broader environment which enables um, teachers to work in the sorts of ways I've just been trying to describe. And I guess in order to do that, is it really time that's the biggest factor so that they can actually feel that they're they're not having to literally schedule every minute of every day so they've got that ability to have that conversation which will be individual which would just allow them to be able to have that or is it um can it still be done within sort of the current confines do you think i think i think time is a factor and it's a very important factor in the way that you said but i think it isn't just that i think it's more about a whole different way of seeing education and that's what i was trying to um, discuss in the in, in the lecture that we have tended to see education as as some sort of a frantic race that you know where one has to cover the whole curriculum one has to do all of the stuff in order to pass tests and so on and I, I use the example in the, um, in the lecture of seeing education much more like a sort of series of guided rambles or sort of moving through a, the museum of life, you know, rather than this sort of sprint race. Because I think the problem is as soon as one starts to see education as too much of a race, um, that that inevitably means that lots of children get left behind um, you know and I'm not against competition as such but I do think it's become too co too competitive um, so to go back to the point about time I think yes you know we have an over full curriculum we have too much emphasis on um, testing in a narrow range of, of particular outcomes but really the the more basic thing that I'm trying to get at is about trying to build relationships where teachers respond to children and to their wonderful comments their eccentricities their difficulties whatever you know their misconceptions their ideas all of those sorts of things and I think as soon as one starts to think about education in that different way you suddenly realize that while planning is important of course it is um, but that actually if you get into a, a situation where you plan everything um, right down to the last minute then you lose all the opportunities or many of the opportunities you know to respond to what children say to you know what they're doing and and those sorts of things so it has a it's a whole different way of sort of seeing the educational process which in some ways is much more relaxed and it's much more reciprocal so that it's more like a conversation um and and i think the difficulty is if we get caught into this sort of what I described as a sort of frantic race, that we lose some of the most important things that young children in particular really need. And I often find, certainly in my experience, is that those are the kind of conversations and the kind of 
um, understanding that children get when they when they reach a point in their life where they might be struggling. So when a child's identified as actually they need extra support or they know there might be something at home which is actually um, um, something that the school needs to be aware of and they need support with, then they get that time and they get that extra bit of interest in those conversations and the ability to discuss those things. I think it's often the people in the rest of the class who would perfectly happy and just doing what they do in in school that um without that special focus they're the ones missing out in some ways on that thing in the in the current scenario and actually having that time and that understanding for everybody i think would is is would, would really make a big difference from that point of view yeah no i i agree uh, and and again i go back to the point that actually i think you know really good um primary teachers of whom there are thousands and thousands that actually they do this but very often they do it in spite of and and against the 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 flow of policy one of the things that i wanted to highlight just from what you just said and it's something about where i particularly came from in terms of my own interest in education is the whole issue of of social disadvantage and those who come from difficult backgrounds and one of my particular worries about the narrowing of the curriculum is that it it further disadvantages those who are already disadvantaged and I think it's a bit counterintuitive but I think it's true that if children are finding it difficult to learn to read and write and to you know learn mathematics there's a sort of tendency to say well then they need to do more and more of that and I think that's what's happening in schools whereas my experience and the experience of a lot of research as well is that actually those are precise those are precisely the children who most benefit from the broader um, experiences which come through making things through art through music through visits to museums or churches or the locality and those sorts of things um, so I think there is a real issue around um, how the narrowing of the curriculum actually further disadvantages children who are already finding learning difficult um, whereas I think, and this is I know a broad generalisation, that I think many children who come from more advantaged backgrounds, you know, they will actually get many of those experiences outside of school. Yes. And that it's one of the really important roles of schools is to offer the opportunities um, to all children, but particularly to those who wouldn't otherwise get those broader experiences outside of school. And in terms of Christian Schiller and, and the lecture itself, how, how was your lecture and, and the focus of it um, influenced by, by his research and his work? Well, Schiller wasn't a, wasn't a researcher as such. He, he, was a, he was someone who worked for um, many years as uh, one of Her Majesty's inspectors. Um, and did a great deal of work with teachers and with head teachers. So much of his work was, was quite practical. But one of the things that really struck me very strongly, and it goes back to what I've just been saying, 
is that he worked for many years as a youngish inspector in the Liverpool area, and uh, which was an area of desperate poverty in the 1920s. Um, and he was appalled by the um, living conditions in which many of those pupils lived. Now, that's understandable, but he was also appalled by the fact that when he went into the elementary schools that they visited, they were very often given a dull and narrow diet of of learning, which didn't engage them at all. Mm. But actually, when he then spoke to them about their experiences outside of school, he very often found that they had a a sort of wealth of experience and knowledge which wasn't either recognised in school or or developed by the elementary schools. And from that he, you know, developed a a very strong sense that actually the narrow curriculum of the elementary school needed to be changed. Um, and then did a great deal of that over the next um, 30 or 40 years of his life. And, in fact, when I was a young teacher, m- you know, much of the um, uh, ways of working to which I was um, introduced with a very strong emphasis on, the, probably not calling it the humanities, but the humanities, the arts, physical movement, those sorts of areas, a love of reading, all of those sorts of aspects... Um, they were seen as much more important than I think they are in schools now. So I sort of drew on on that aspect of, of Schiller's work, but also his belief that change comes really from the bottom up. Um, now, if you say that, that alone is too simple, because obviously all teachers work within a policy context and um, you know the curriculum and the assessment procedures you know one has to take account of those but really what he said is that if you're going to change people's attitudes and beliefs profoundly then one actually really needs to work with teachers and to trust teachers more and so another aspect which I think is really um, important from Schiller's legacy in relation to the situation over the last 20 or 30 years is that politicians particularly have come not to trust teachers. I think individual parents often have great trust in teachers, but there is sort of underlying the whole discussion about primary education particularly a sort of sense that teachers need to be told what to do whereas my belief is that actually there is a huge wealth of experience um, on which we can draw and that actually teachers understand individual children and children's needs far better than politicians do and that if we're really going to um, start the process of change uh, from the current situation which in many ways I deplore um, then actually we need to recover much of that trust in teachers. But going along with that, and again I um, discussed this in the lecture, is that teachers must learn to be much more 
confident in articulating what their skill and their professionalism is and I think sometimes uh, you know teachers have been a bit self-deprecating and it's really important that we try to uh, to to work out and to make more public some of the aspects of, of of really what good teachers of young children actually do and I've done quite a bit of work in my own writing about this because I think it's quite difficult you look at the at somebody teaching a class of young children and it looks easy it looks effortless and you go and try and do it and yeah find it's very very hard um, and so I think it's really important that um, teachers as a profession both you know recover some of their own belief in themselves which I think has been lost to some extent over the last 20 or 30 years um, but also find ways of articulating what it is that makes for good teaching and some of that I think is very much to do with the sorts of relationships we were talking about a few minutes ago and how one builds up an environment where young children have a broad range of opportunities and where they actually learn to become confident learners in in, a, in all sorts of ways. And getting that feeling from the teacher's point of view to want to get that out into the community and also from a public point of view, do you think that change will come through the voice of organisations or unions in terms of trying to get that into the media and into people's perceptions or is it much more organic than that in terms of their relationships with their immediate community, obviously their students, but then also the parents and actually having a much more sort of holistic kind of feel of, of what the school is and, and sort of gradually that ethos sort of spilling out almost in, into everyone's sort of idea of what teaching is and, and the children's learning? I think it's a it's a really tricky question that I, I think to take the way that that you have put it the immediate aspect is the second part of what you're saying which is that one needs to do it within one's own school community within the wider community um, and with parents but I'm not convinced that that then just sort of spills out into the wider political arena yeah and of course, not all teachers are, you know, going to be to want to or be able to influence the the, the, the broader political um, agenda. So there is a place for organisations like NAEP and the, you know, the subject associations, teacher unions, and, and and so on. But I don't think that happens automatically. And as I was saying in relation to Schiller in the lecture, it's a difficult and you know arduous journey that one needs to, to take and I, I thought a lot about the reasons for this um, and I think it's very tricky for politicians to avoid again this sort of sense of the frantic race and the and the sort of league tables um, and you know that if in the results of PISA which is the international um, league tables that we've slipped from ninth to 13th oh well then we've got to you know we've really got to sort of bring in a new curriculum or, or whatever and 
again, that's why I come back to this point about a different way of, uh, of, of, of thinking about education, which I think is tricky for politicians because, you know, they're judged very often on results. But I think as soon as you get caught into that, into that whole way of thinking, then you, you get somewhat trapped into, oh, well, we need to do more in order to get our scores up. And I think that in the end, that A, it probably doesn't work, and B, and more importantly, that what we really need to be looking at is something much more to do with the aims of education in a complex and, and difficult world. And I think there's far too little discussion about the aims of education and what it is to be an educated person in the 21st century. And I think there's a sort of implicit belief that actually if everybody had high scores in tests, then everything would be fine in the world of education. And we all know that that isn't true. I mean, just to take one example, there's rightly a great deal of worry about young people's mental health. And I think there's strong evidence now that there is a link between that and this sort of frantic competitive race, you know, to score highly in tests and exams. And so the whole thing is sort of tied together that because we get so obsessed with exam results, that then puts pressure on children, which then tends to make them lack resilience and to become fragile. And I think we sort of need to step back and say what are the sorts of uh, the sorts of aims of education based on what is it to be an educated person for the 21st century and i think as soon as you start to think in that sort of way and i mean interestingly the cbi the employers organization did this back in in 2012 so it's not just about teachers doing that but my own thinking and, and lots of other people as soon as you start thinking about that you then say well we really need it's things like qualities that one's talking about qualities such as creativity and resilience and teamwork um, those sorts of aspects of, of children which we need to build up rather than filling them up with lots of facts you know or, or indeed focusing too much on a whole range of discrete skills so it's something about thinking about what is it that we want to achieve um, in terms of the whole child so um, just to give one example of course I want children to be literate and numerate but I don't just want them to be that I want them to be confident I want them to be resilient I want them to be able to you know work with other people to be empathetic with those who are different you know not to be stereotyped and prejudiced so it becomes a, a, a complicated thing but I think that as soon as you start to think about that in those ways you then recognize the role of the arts the humanities um, and a whole range of other aspects of the curriculum which at the moment I think are too often marginalised. So, uh, I mean, a change in the curriculum from that point of view, I think we probably both agree would make a would make a massive difference. The thing I'm often interested in is the fact that um, 
I guess because they say of policy and because of politicians, they, their life is relatively short-lived, and so they need to see results yep. in the next year, the next cycle of tests, and, and all of that kind of thing. But even when, even within that, you can see that if you take countries like Finland, who educate their children in a different standpoint um, and with a broader curriculum and age um, um, when they start school and all of that kind of thing, um, they do it differently and seem to be very successful in what they do. And the other side of the coin is that you hear businesses say, we want the qualities that you've just been talking about as well, which would therefore, from an economic point of view and a work point of view, would be very beneficial for the country. So what is it that you think is the, is, the, is the sticking point that they don't think, ah, oh, there must be something there that we could do because we can already see there are things have out there, either from different countries or from the actual the wider world that are actually saying we want these skills as well, which we're not getting from the current education system. If we were, if league tables were the most important thing and we were at the top by a mile, then I could understand the politicians saying, yes, but it's working, whether we agree with it being um, working from a, a human point of view. But we're not even there yet either. So I find, what, what are your thoughts on, on maybe why there isn't a, a, a light bulb moment going off of kind of, but we're not actually achieving what we're saying we're trying to achieve anyway, so why not do it somewhat differently? What, what you say sets off two or three trains of thought, and I'll, 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 try, and, um, I'll try and pick all three up. Um, I think the first one is, uh, I, I am sympathetic to politicians for the reasons that you say you know, the business of short term and what I was saying about the, the, the need to show results um, but I think also politicians do have a, a role in terms of of leadership and as I said earlier I think it's very easy to get caught into this frantic race of mm -hmm. comparing with, with, with other countries um, and I think it's I think it's generally not terribly helpful and I think it really is important for politicians and don't think many of them do it or certainly not pol political parties to go back to what I was saying before about you know what is it that we want out of a, an education system um, and I, th I'm, I think I'm very disappointed that really there's been very little discussion about that um, as I see it in terms of you know of political parties within the last 20 or 30 years just to pick up on the point about about comparisons uh, with other countries, I think one needs to be always slightly wary about this. You know, Finland, as you say, is often sort of brought in as a, an example, um, and I'm a great admirer of of the of, of the Finnish system, and I think the point that you referred to about the starting age of school is an important one, and I think we do have a particularly English obsession. Um, with you know getting children into school younger and younger and even more important than that in many ways it's not just about when we get them into school but actually then get them into a particular approach to schooling yes. which is wholly inappropriate it seems to me and I think the loss of a play-based curriculum um, which we can um, see works particularly well in the Scandinavian countries you know I think that's a particularly worrying aspect in terms of four and five year olds uh, I'm rather tired of hearing politicians saying that we ought to go to the to the far east um, you know to see how they teach maths now I think there are certain ways in which you know one can learn from other systems but I think one needs to be a bit wary of that 
And I think in terms of learning from other countries, there's something to be, a lot to be said for learning from systems which are quite similar to ours. And although I don't know a great deal about what's happened in Scotland, um, I think actually that's perhaps a country because in many ways it's you know more similar, obviously, course, than the yeah. Far East or the Scandinavian countries where we probably have a lot to learn in terms of the sort of breadth of the curriculum and also the engagement of, of, of parents um, in, in the community. You see, I think we have an extraordinary situation whereby if you look at four- and five-year-olds, certainly most of them have a very um, imaginative, fairly wide-ranging, not too narrow a view of learning. Now, of course, they don't have the experience that older children and adults have, but they certainly aren't nearly as constrained by subject boundaries uh, or, or, or you know, some of the beliefs about learning which we as adults tend to impose on them. And I mean, one of the things that somebody said, I forget who now, is, you know, thank heavens that um, children learn to talk before we try and teach them to talk. Because if we try to teach them to talk in the way that we teach them to read, then actually we would make it more difficult. And I think quite often we do make learning more difficult for children than actually it is in a much more natural way. So I think many of the most important things that children learn, they learn in a fairly natural and unforced way. And of course they need guidance and, and so on. And that's what teachers and parents and, and, and others um, can offer. But I think we do get into this very strange situation where four and five-year-olds very often arrive at school with many of the qualities that, as you say, employers are looking for. And of course, education isn't just for employment, it's also for life, but it's for uh, employment is part of life. And somehow we have a schooling system which manages to squeeze, you know, many of those um, things out of the children. And then they get to 15 or 16. And for some reason, we're then surprised <laughs> that actually, you know, they're no longer able to, um, you know, to, to, to manifest those qualities or many of the many of the children aren't. So, I mean, I think just as an example, how do you learn teamwork? It seems to me you learn teamwork basically by working with other people. I mean, to some extent with those who are similar, but also with those who are different and you learn you know, to make use of a whole range of different skills and, uh, and approaches from different people. And yet we have a highly individualised system which is uh, then backed up by, you know, by the testing regime. If we want to encourage teamwork, which I believe is an absolutely key quality for life in general, particularly, you know, in the 21st century, um, then actually we need to encourage much more cooperative learning. Similarly with creativity, you know, if we want children to be creative, then actually we that needs to run right the way through the whole approach. It, it, creativity, I think, isn't something which just happens within, inverted commas, creative subjects. So, you know, music, art and those things, of course, they can contribute to creativity, but actually... I believe learning is a is a creative process, um, uh, so that actually 
you know, in every subject there are opportunities for, for, for creativity. But too often we um, end up trying to impose particular views of learning on children, whereas actually we need much more, I think, to run with the flow of how children um, learn and then to be facilitating and, and, you know, and, and adapting Whereas I think we've got caught, particularly in England in the last 20 or 30 years, into a view of teaching, which is that it's much more um, to do with instruction as opposed to facilitation. Now, I mean, there's, there's, there's a place for both, but I think we need much more to see teachers as um, enablers and facilitators rather than you know, sort of deliverers and instructors. And that really almost goes full circle in terms of, of giving them the, the, that sense of power they feel to actually be the teachers that they can be because when you're yeah. enabling and facilitating, then it's not about the planning at all. Then it's having that overall idea of where you think it might be going, which may then go in a completely different direction as well. Um, but then you're able to use those skills and that understanding and that experience to help the child learn whatever it is that they want to do in that particular environment, I guess. No, I, I think that's right, and it, it's also where teachers need to have the confidence to do that. And one of the concerns that I have is that while I think we have a, a generation of teachers who are extremely efficient, probably far more efficient in many ways than I was as a teacher, you know, in terms of their planning and curriculum coverage and those things, um, that actually they very often will find it quite difficult to deal with what is unexpected you know so they may be able to deliver an, a, a, a you know a, a, a planned lesson very very well but actually when a child then or a group of children come up with an interesting question or sort of go off piece so to speak mm -hmm. then actually they're they're um, you know find it very difficult to know how to follow that line so i mean michael oakshot who's a, a philosopher from many years ago talked about education being a conversation between the generations which I think is a, a lovely phrase mm. the idea that it's much more like a, a conversation where it goes back and forth and that you know, we explore as adult and child or adult and class we you know explore something and you know each side says you know what they think one then enriches one's thinking as opposed to what I think one too often sees is you know the adult standing in front of the class and telling children what to learn and ultimately I think don't think that's really how children learn no and and I think certainly from my experience with our children going through the education system it's it's certainly not those what I guess would be considered normal days of that kind of being spoken to and, and being talked to that aren't the ones where they've come home and gone, you'll never guess what we did. They came from much more the more creative, the, the, the visits out of school and the, yeah, that slightly more enriched day for whichever reason that happened to, to, be, to be their experience in that particular scenario. No, I think that's absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, it's a bit simple to just to focus on the memorable things of course yeah. <laughs> you know because actually you know a lot of what we have to learn is a bit of a struggle and maybe sometimes it's a it's a bit tedious um but i i 
in the in the lecture I you know I talk about some of the memorable moments you know such as I remember going with my father I remember badgering my father because of my history teacher to say look I want to go to Stonehenge and I mean in those days you could literally walk up to the stones at yes. Stonehenge and um and touch them and get the sense of it and I would have been nine or ten probably um and I vividly remember that and I just think that has a a quality of experience uh, and understanding of history in this case um, and of human culture, um, which I think can't uh, can't ever be replicated by the best lesson, um, and which has remained with me, whatever it is, forty five years later. And fifty five, sorry. And <laughs> 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 um, we we talked a little bit about the fact that. Um, sort of the, the way of teaching now is sort of you know 20 30 years into a cycle um, and so therefore there must be an awful lot of head teachers now which don't know any different their their teaching days were were in that same sort of guise in that same sort of format so do you see a sort of an, an ever increasing spiral of the same assuming that policy doesn't change dr- dramatically or, or or is there a way of that changing because the actual leadership I mean I guess I've always thought that the leadership in that ethos comes from the person who wants to set the agenda for the school. And, and if they don't fully understand that in the way that they might have done um, sort of pre this sort of policy idea, um, how that sort of then gets back into the school. I mean, other than the sorts of conversations that we're having, hopefully, and people listening to these sorts of things. To pick on the first point that you were saying, I agree. But in fact, I think it's even more worrying than that because I think that... It isn't just the senior leaders, their experience as teachers, but many of them, it's actually their experience as learners in school as well. So actually they've had relatively little experience, many of them, of the sort of approach that I'm talking about. Um, And I think that makes it very difficult for people not to think of education in terms of a race and in terms of measurable outcomes and you know that that's basically what learning and teaching is about and I think it then goes back to what we were discussing earlier really I think it's it's tricky to see how one um, changes that except by a whole well I think there's the bottom-up aspect of actually talking about what are we about as educators as we were saying a few minutes ago um there's all sorts of issues to do with teacher education which i think is problematic just because it's so short you know and i don't believe that one learns to become something as complex as a teacher just on a on a very short course as i said earlier i'm i am a great believer in the sort of bottom up but how that then influences the um policy agenda i think is 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 difficult to know except by you know the sorts of discussions that we're having yep. at the organizations you know and, and constant um, um, arguing for the, the 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 sort of vision that I'm trying to promote um, but I I, I I think if I was going to do one thing as a politician I know you haven't asked me this but one or two people have in the past that I think actually many schools are very very driven by Ofsted And I think that if Ofsted were to, um, I mean, I would like to see quite a reform of Ofsted, but even if one didn't do that, 
I think if they actually had to report on the breadth and balance of the curriculum um, and also uh, on another area that I'm particularly interested in, which is spiritual, moral, social, cultural, if, if there was much more emphasis within that, uh, those sorts of areas um, in the Ofsted framework and in how schools are inspected, then I think that would be liberating to, to many teachers and head teachers who I think remain very you know constrained by what they believe Ofsted is, is, is looking for. And, you know, when I speak to some heads, they say, well, actually, Ofsted is much better than it was. And I think there's probably, you know, some basis for that. But again, I think there's still, Ofsted is still very caught and schools are therefore very caught that, you know, the really, if it's, that really it's mostly about data and measurable outcomes yep. in literacy and numeracy um, and as I said earlier of course I think those things are important but I want a much broader vision a much richer vision uh, of what it means to be a um, an educated person uh, and, and sorry just to add one thing uh, I'm also convinced by my discussions with teachers particularly older older teachers I, th I think that actually the sort of vision that I'm trying to espouse is something that they would, because of their experience of children, that they would say, yes, we would love to do that. But actually, it's very hard to find any time in the curriculum, you know, to do those sorts of activities and, and field work. Um, and I mean, just as one example, and I mean, it, it, it makes me weak, to be honest, you know, that particularly in year six, with the emphasis on SATs, that, you know, that so many schools spend a, such a lot of time preparing for SATs, and then after they're over, we'll then say, well, now we're going to do some of the yes. other things that we really believe in. And and uh, and I, I'm, I'm actually a, a great believer that, uh, of course, one needs some emphasis on the skills of literacy and numeracy but you know I mean I learned to be fairly literate um, by the learning of history and geography and by learning to write stories and literature and many of those things um, so again it, it comes back to, to my previous point about a whole different way of seeing a what we want to achieve and then the means to, to achieve that, whereas we're caught into a very, very narrow view of it. So if people want to actually um, experience the, the lecture themselves, you've got it on your website, which if you're happy to, I'll, I'll put a link to so that people can read it and, 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 um, and really get their teeth into it um, in its full entirety. And um, No, that, that would be great. And if people wanted to, you know, make any comments on that, uh, you know, again, my on the website, my email address is... Um, is, is available fantastic well thank you so much for chatting to me it's been it's been a really interesting conversation and um and we could stay here all day i yeah. <laughs> go round and round and round but uh, um, for, um for those people listening i hope that's given you uh, an awful lot to think about and um and just some things which maybe you could think about implement differently or just have different conversations with the people in your local community being the school and the parents the governing body and just to sort of give you a bit of empowerment really to that we can make a difference and especially from the ground up and um and just little bits every day then can to can make a difference to the future as a whole we hope anyway thank you as well i've really enjoyed the conversation and just to pick on your last point i think the idea of empowering teachers is a lovely one 
Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.